Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. It is so good to see you all again. At that very moment, I was trying to learn how to use this coffee machine. Shana's parents are living with us right now because they moved out of their home in Jerusalem. And there's a few months in between their new and their old. And we had the great honor of having them live with us, which is wonderful. And I'm really excited that Dvash gets to see that. And uh, her grandparents so close. We have a little guest house right under our home. And, uh, and so they're living with us and she has a coffee machine. And for reasons that you will soon know, I've been overdosing on coffee, which is not usually my thing. But anyways, that brings me to the disclaimer that I want to start with, because um, I think I am coming down with something. It has been a rough day for me, and I was feeling weak and very fatigued. And uh, the truth is, I was thinking about calling off the fellowship, which already I'm feeling better and happy I didn't do. Um, but uh, the, our holy, sweet, wonderful Tabitha convinced me that a short fellowship, a less than usual fellowship, was better than no fellowship at all. And ultimately, a lot of coffee, I concluded, would uh, would possibly work wonders. And so I hope that this fellowship comes together. And if it doesn't, at the very least, it's my hope that uh, we can connect at the end on the fellowship connection, which would redeem the entire thing. Um it was just such a crazy Shabbat. I don't know if we made a silly decision or not a silly decision. We were supposed to have beloved friends of ours here at the farm, uh, Toby Cram and his beloved wife, Chai, and their children, and we love them. And then one of them got strep. And uh, we decided that they said that they couldn't come. She had strep, but that we should go to them. And so we went to them. And now I think that I may have strep. I don't know. I don't know why that happened. I don't know why I make the decisions that I make. But I'm happy that I did because it was a special Shabbat and we were together. And hopefully Dvash and most hopefully Shana does not have it. If anyone has to have it, please, Hashem, let it all be on me. Let all the strep be right here. All in me. Um, are you guys saying amen to that? I don't know if you want to say amen to. But anyways... Um, as usual, I, I'm just like scrolling through your faces and it's giving me strength and motivation and gratitude. And I wanted to share this with you because, you know, there have been a lot of groups and families that have been coming out to the farm. And, uh, you know, as I told you, we do zero advertising, zero promotion. It's just become a very, uh, you know, word of mouth. And, and, I, and I love it. Uh, but it doesn't tell a certain level of repetition. There's no getting away from it. Each stop on the farm has certain basic ideas attached to it, certain prophecies, certain concepts, certain explanations. And the repetition can get challenging sometimes. I mean, it's tolerable for me. I actually enjoy it sometimes. All, all the time, a part of me is enjoying it all the time. Because each time for that person, for that family, for that yeshiva, for that group, it's new for them. And so it's a new thing. But um, it's a new experience. And, and I tell myself that nearly every profession entails a certain level of repetition, I think. And uh, how fortunate am I, Ashrani, that I am able to, that I'm repeating this, that this is what I'm doing again and again with my life. And so I love that. But all of you in this fellowship have brought about the most beautiful added dimension to my life by the implicit demand of this fellowship. All of you here right now coming in, I value each of your time. This is your Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, wherever you are in the world, early Sunday evening, maybe even after Sunday. Is this Monday for anyone? I don't know. But you're all here, and it means a lot. And that comes with a certain responsibility. And, uh, and it forces me every week to dig deep and find that which I want to share that is new, that is raw and real and dynamic. And I want to thank all of you for that. Uh, for demanding of me to dig deep each and every week. And it just is so good for me. And it's so good and it's so therapeutic and it's challenging and it's awesome. And, uh, you know, I'm able to find what's alive in my heart and what's alive in the Torah that I'm learning to share with you. And this is really a lifeline for me. So so thank you. Thank you. And, uh, and that's why I, if I had to decide if we were going to have only one or the other, if this fellowship would be about the fellowship itself or just the fellowship connection, I think I would have to say the fellowship connection, even though we don't do it all the time. 
But when we do it and it's awesome, it's just the best. You know, both, by the way, not just the connection at the end of the fellowship, our connections that we have increasingly have throughout the, the week on, on the phone or on WhatsApp or on email. I'm not so good with email. I'm the worst on email. But uh, just in our communications and our connections that happen, that's what it's really about, to hear each other, to open up to each other. There's something just real and raw about it, and I appreciate it a lot. Allow me to take a quick sip of this coffee. Amen. I mean, a lot of you send me questions throughout the week, sometimes about the Torah and sometimes about abstract spiritual questions, sometimes relationship stuff, sometimes life advice. Someone asked me an interesting question about a club that they're running and there's fights going on within the club. And it actually felt sort of like the a little bit of the dysfunction we have happen here at the farm sometimes. And, uh, you know, and it's uh, it's it's special. It's it, the the questions and the thoughts for us to hear each other and to open it up. So uh, so I just want to say again, I'm sorry. I appreciate it. And by the way, I want to just get this out of the way and we're going to move on. If you reach out to me and I don't respond, please, please, please reach out again. You're not being a nudge. It's not annoying. You're being a good friend. And as you know, I'm not always great with communication. Things slip through and you're doing me a kindness and a favor by resending it to me as many times as is necessary. Thank you for your understanding of my dysfunction sometimes. Anyways, these uh, it, it's beautiful. And more than once, our conversations that we're having, they summon up within me uh, the verse from the third chapter of the book of Malachi, which speaks about the days of redemption, a time of refinement like gold and silver. Uh, I really suggest you look in the third chapter after the fellowship at some point. Just read that third chapter, even the entire book of Malachi. It's not long. It's something that I think we often overlook, but I think it speaks to us. And uh, and, and here's what it says. It says, it says, Azni dabru yirei Hashem, Right, just a little background. It's talking about uh, a time of refinement of gold and silver, a time when the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will again start becoming pleasing to Hashem, a time when God will be stirring within us the desire to return to Him, a time when the righteous of the nations will count Israel as happy and a desired land. And, and so here's the verse that you've probably read by now already because Tabitha put it up, but I believe it encapsulates this fellowship. And then those who fear Hashem will speak to one another. And Hashem paid attention to it and heard it. And the book of remembrance was written before him concerning those who fear Hashem and those who contemplate and reflect upon his name. And I can't help but to feel that this fellowship is a, is a fulfillment of that prophecy. I know that there are, you know, many, many here and many who are not here many of the righteous remnants of the nations that are not with us in this fellowship. And, uh, and there are other Jews in the land that are meeting and conversing with them that that's happening. I mean, I, we don't have a monopoly on that prophecy, but I do believe that it's happening here in this fellowship. And what is happening here is being written in a scroll before the God of Israel. These conversations, these discussions, and even more so, you know, the, the love and the yearning and the thirst in your hearts, that's what I believe the prophet Malachi was talking about. The conversation that emanates from that fire that is alive within so many of you, within all of you. And so let's harness that into a prayer for one moment, into a blessing. Hashem, please allow our hearts to be humble before you, to seek your name in truth. Let our discussions and our conversations and our questions, our search and our seeking of you, let it find favor before you. May the words of our mouth be a, a sweet fragrance for you. Please, Hashem, fan the flames of the fire in our souls to love you with all that we are, to fear you with all that we are, and may our very lives be a testimony to your kingship. Amen. Okay, now I have a lot that I'm going to try to share with you here, but before we dive in, let me just introduce Jeremy, who is at a family reunion type event with Tehillah's side of the family. Sometimes I feel like Jeremy's sides of the family, it's a little bit like um, Rachel and Leah in their arms race to have as many children. You know, like they're each trying to do more and more events. It's beautiful. It's a blessing, but uh, it's, uh, uh, it's a lot. 
I think it's great. I bless him that there should always be happy reasons to get together. So here is Jeremy, who just sent this uh, this thought in. Shalom, fellowship. I hope everything is going good with all of you. You know, we're in the month of Elul now, and every morning we hear the shofar preparing us for Rosh Hashanah. And I've been listening to the shofar as long as I can remember. And somehow every year I hear something a little bit different. And I just wanted to share with you what's going on in my heart and in my mind and in my ears when I'm hearing this blast every morning trying to wake us up. And so there's a story that's told. I believe it's told by Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Mibardichev. And he says there was once a king who had an amazing son. And they had a great relationship together. And he was doing everything that he could to prepare his son to become king. And as the son grew older, he started to rebel. And eventually he started doing things that were so inappropriate. The king finally said, listen, I can't be around this. He can't be in the palace. We have to send him away. We're going to send him away to the farthest village in the kingdom with the most ruly people. And he'll eventually realize what he's missing and he'll get back in line. So the guards take the son. They take him out to the farthest village. There's no running water. There's no sewage system. They're all alone. They're eating bugs and God knows what else. They just uh, rude people, gross people. They're not showering. And finally he gets to this little hut and realizes what he has to eat. And he's so upset that this is what's happened to him and this is his fate. And he's so stubborn decides I'm going to stay here and eventually the gross food that they eat he gets used to it not showering he just gets used to living in filth and then slowly but surely he becomes one of the people of that village and he almost forgets what it was to be the son of the king and months go by and years go by and the king just misses his son so much and so he sends out messengers out to the farthest village to call on his son to find him and to see if he would come home. And the messengers go out and they're screaming out throughout the streets, son of the king, the prince, we're calling you to come home, command from your father. And the son is so used to being among these people, he doesn't want to go back. He's already so used to the filth, kind of likes it now, no responsibility, just kind of Yuck. and he's just there and the messengers come back to the king and they tell him the terrible story listen we're, we're really sorry but couldn't find your son there was no prince there there was no one in royal clothing there was no one there that even would be worthy of coming into the palace and the king can't believe it so the king says I want to go I want to go to the ends of the kingdom and I want to call out on my son and the king gets on the royal chariot travels out to the ends of the kingdom and as he stands out there the royal team blows the shofar announcing the king's arrival and the king starts to yell come home come home and the son hears his father's voice come home and together with the sound of the shofar, the sun breaks and remembers how beautiful it was in the palace, how wonderful the food was, how great it was to be responsible for the kingdom. And he pulls himself out of the just yuck that he was living in. And he runs out to his father, dirty and smelly and kind of hungry. And the call to come home is what brought him out. And I think that's actually what the sound of the shofar is. I used to think of it very often as our calling out to God, kind of like our primal call of our soul, calling out to God beyond words and beyond paragraphs and sentences, just our, our call out to God. But maybe here it's kind of God calling us, calling us home. And you think about what it was like when we really felt close to God, when we were on the top of our game when things were serene and peaceful and good and, you know, what does King David say? I just have one request all the days of my life, just one thing, that's all I want. I just want to sit in the house of God. 
And in those moments when we're called back to the house of God in our own life and we feel his presence in our life, maybe it's like we're just used to like kind of being in the muck right now. We're just so used to this world and now the sound of the shofar is calling us home. And I think that's what everyone's doing with the loved ones around them. That's what we're doing in this fellowship. We're just walking each other home. I heard that from Rabbi Eli Michelle. And that's really our purpose, just to grab each other by the hand and walk us home. And so may we all hear the sound of the shofar. Let it wake us up and let us know that our Father and our King is calling us home, calling us to the place where we were destined to be, in the palace with responsibility for the kingdom. And so may you all have a beautiful Elul as we march closer and closer to Rosh Hashanah. Bye, fellowship. Shalom, that was, uh, that was really beautiful. I didn't know it was Rabbi Eli Michel that said uh, the idea of walking each other home, but that's also something that I hold tightly because uh, part of imp implicit in that is that this world is a corridor, this world is a journey, and there's a destination at the end, there's a home, and uh, that does provide us consolation sometimes in these difficult moments. Uh, thank you for sharing that, Jeremy. And um, and uh, it, it sort of brings me back to uh, the verse that we quoted just before in Malachi. I want to take it back there. I want to talk about that, particularly the first part of that verse. That's what I want to start talking about on the fellowship. It says, and then those who fear Hashem, will speak with one another. Notice it doesn't say those that love Hashem, but those who fear Hashem. Why? Why? So it brings up a question that one of our fellowship members sent me, I think two weeks ago. And I wanted to open it up here with all of you um, because it's a really fundamental question. It's a question that I've struggled myself with over the years. It's a question that's quite timely as we're in the month of Elul leading up to Rosh Hashanah. And part of the prescription of service here at this moment is really fearing Hashem. That's the prescription right now. And I'm, I'm sharing with you with permission of our beloved Carrie, who asked it. She said, and here it is. Here's the question. She wrote, hi, Ari. If you have time over the next few days, would you explain to me how I should understand the fear we are to have towards Hashem? My son, who's 31, and I were talking about it, and I don't feel I have a good handle on it myself, and I don't want to teach him something I believe if it's wrong. I think that's what she meant there. It is if I'm wrong. Carrie from the Fellowship. Also, I love your stories about your kids and how authentic you are to all of us. I look forward to hearing it each week. I'm blessed to be part of this amazing family, and we are blessed to have you. And I'm blessed to read that because that means that you got to listen to the crew. You know, more pictures of Dvash and Sheila. What can I do? Um, but, uh, but that's a good question, you know. And uh, most questions I just answer directly, unless it's something that I feel sometimes is really uh, could be in all of our hearts. And so before I even dive in, let me ask, does this question resonate with any of you? The question about fearing Hashem and, and that balance? Okay, there's some hands up. Honestly, I thought there would be more hands up because it's a question that I've dealt with a long time. Uh, but that sort of excites me because it means that uh, many of you will not have further questions, but also possibly answers. Because I want to share some thoughts I have on the subject but I really want you to open your hearts because uh, I'd like to hear from you during the Fellowship Connection, really about, of course, about anything, but particularly if you have anything you want to share on the subject of fearing Hashem. Sometimes I think maybe going in with a certain subject is a good start um, because it's really is such a foundational topic. I think we'd all benefit to hear from each other, but I'll go first. So one of the primary sources in the Torah for the commandment to fear Hashem, we read in the portion of Va'etchanan, just a few fellowships ago. It's in chapter 6, verse 13. It says, Fear only Hashem your God, and Him alone shall you serve, and by His name shall you swear. And so, like, like pretty much any other source about fear, a big part of, I think, the question that Carrie asked, and about, a big part of the misunderstanding about what it means to fear Hashem, is due to the translation itself. Right, the word in this verse for fear, and most of the times in the Torah that fear is used is tirah. Now, the taf at the beginning is affixed to the beginning to signify future tense, meaning you shall fear. But the root word, as you see here, is yirah. Tabitha flashed that up very quickly. Let's see if we can get that back up there. Yud resh aleph, yirah, which means from ro'eh, to see. That's what really the word fear 
means when it's used almost all of the time. Um, uh, Hashem is called the Pachad Yitzchak, the fear of Isaac and the word Lefached, the conventional fear is used there. But most of the time, that's what it is, Yirah. And that cuts to the root of it. The word really is a, a mistranslation, but the translation is used for the same reason that I begrudgingly often use it myself. And that's because the conventional fear that we often think about is a natural consequence of seeing, of beholding, right? The word that the word yirah actually means seeing, beholding with, with your eyes, on some level seeing. And I'm going to try to explain to you what I mean. When I was early on in my relationship with Hashem in my journey, which is really, I think, if I had to trace it back, some people ask me, when did I become a Baal Tshuva? When did I start my Tshuva process? Because I wasn't raised in a family that we kept the laws of Sabbath. So the conventional understanding is, when did I start keeping the Sabbath? And that's when I became religious. But really, it was much more before that. And I really have to trace it back to when I started thinking. That's really when the relationship with when Hashem started, at least the intellectual, conscious relationship with Hashem. Maybe before then, it was even more profound than that. It was beyond thinking. But when I started thinking, and I came to believe at some point when I was 13, 14, 15, um, you know, I, I was internalizing the truth of Hashem, that He runs the world. It was a different understanding of Hashem. He wasn't as much infused. It was more like, you know, I had the rabbi of my synagogue. He was like 6'4", and he was this good, loving, kind man, massive giant. And when I pictured Hashem, I sort of pictured this rabbi's face in the sky. I wish I brought a picture of this rabbi. His name is Rabbi Joseph Radinsky. If anyone wants to Google him at some point just to see, you could see the righteousness on him. I really miss him. His memory be a blessing. But anyways, at that age, it was like, it was a fear of consequence that I'd be punished for my sins, both in this world and in the next. But the more my relationship grew and evolved, the deeper and more profound my understanding of the Torah and Hashem became. And therefore the fear didn't, it didn't go away, but instead of a fear of punishment, it became a fear of detachment. Now, I know this is nothing new for most of you. You know this. This is sort of basic, but it's sometimes good to go back to the basics. So it became a fear of, of detachment, a fear of violating a relationship that was becoming the most intimate and profound relationship of my life. It became a fear that can be likened to what uh, child psychologists call separation anxiety. Right, Most of us as parents have seen it in our own children. Um, I'm bracing myself, not successfully. I'm like dreading within uh, some in, in the next two weeks, uh, Devash is going to be starting a new kindergarten. And uh, what I imagine will happen is what I remember happening the first day of the gun that she went to last year. She showed up and she saw the toys and the other kids and she was excited and she ran in and she was playing. And then, you know, we were sort of taking cautious steps backwards to slip out and she saw us leaving. And she ran towards us. You've seen it, right? You know what I'm talking about. She embraced us and she cleaved onto us crying. She asked us not to leave. And it was just heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. I cried from the whole thing. Um, Shana was a little bit more stoic, but Shana's more, more stoic than me. She's stronger than me. And so while it's often referred to as a phenomenon in child psychology, if you dig deep enough to the very core of our soul, I think we should simply just call it psychology because we all have that fear of separation deep within us. Even, I don't know why child psychology is even a thing because I think each of us, if we're really self-aware and conscious, the child is still alive within us. That's why I remember they say about Sarah that she was uh, uh, seven years and 20 years and 100 years because, yeah, she was 127 years old, but that seven-year-old Sarah was still there. You know, it was still there within her. And so we have that all within us if we're aware of it and, and honest about it. And, and so at least I do. And, and so that separation, that, that's the fear that I have, that fear of losing our connection with our creator, with our father in heaven. And I can honestly say that I can't remember the last time I even thought about the consequences of anything in the afterlife. I just don't think about it. And most of, the, of my friends, of my spiritual mentors also don't think about don't think about it. My, my greatest fear is the detachment. You know, Hashem operates with us. One of the facets of the relationship is, uh, is a relationship di dynamic of mida, keneged, mida, attribute for attribute. 
And if we violate the integrity of our relationship with him, if we distance ourselves from him, then he lets us, right? He allows us to have the perception that he's not with us anymore. And that loneliness, that disconnection that we've all felt, I believe we've, I shouldn't speak for everybody, but I've certainly felt it. If you've felt that before, raise your hand. Okay, so that's 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 most of us. That, that feeling of, of alienation. Uh, by the way, our beloved Stephanie so beautifully and vulnerability uh, and vulnerably shared with us in the last Fellowship Connection her experience about that. And she was in tears about it. It was so raw and so real. And, uh, you know, it's one of the most painful experiences, I think, in the human condition. And the reason that I say that, uh, that, that, that Hashem allows us to perceive that he's no longer with us because we know, we know both in our heads and in our hearts, in our minds and in our souls that Hashem is always with us, always. But when we no longer can perceive that closeness, when he conceals himself from us in, in such a way, well, then I, none of that intellectual knowledge matters much. I mean, in some ways it's, it is it is everything, but in other ways it's really nothing. It's, you know, it is what it is. Our intellectual understanding provides little solace to us when we're feeling alien, alienated and shunned and alone and depressed and just, you know, disconnected. Um, we've spoken about, we've spoken about that, that power of perception before. You know, we can have all the blessings in the whole world, but if we don't perceive it, it means nothing, right? It means less than nothing because sometimes if we really don't perceive it, there's so many blessings and that discrepancy between how many blessings we have and how much we perceive it, the blessings themselves can sometimes become a source of torment for us, if you know what I mean. But anyways, that's why the word we've been translating as fear really means to see. Because what is Hashem really asking us to do? What's he asking of us? He's asking not to fear him like we would fear a terrorist or a violent criminal, God forbid. It's exactly the opposite. He's asking us to see him. He's asking us to see him everywhere that we look, to see him in all of the blessings in our lives. He's asking us to see him in our relationships with our family and our children and those we love. I mean, you all know, for some reason in my life right now at this stage, the place where he most shows up for me when I'm holding my children in my arms, I just feel like, I feel like Jacob when he embraced Joseph and the sages say he was saying Shema, that he was saying, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, that the the presence of Hashem was so in that reunion that he just needed to mark it, that he needed to infuse Hashem within it. Those moments where I'm holding my children, it's like overflow for me. And so he's asking us to see him in those relationships, in our loving relationships, and also in the relationships of, uh, of the people that we fear or the things that we fear or the antagonism that we have towards certain things. He's asking us to see him in everything. He's asking for a relationship with us that is so complete that it encompasses everything. So um, to understand all of this more deeply, you know, I want to start pulling little verses from the Haftorah, from the, uh, the portion of the prophets, from this week's Torah portion. It's a little bit piecemeal the way I did this whole thing. But, um, but the por portion of the, uh, the prophets was Isaiah chapter 54, verses 1 through 10. And so I want to start just to, to enunciate this very idea with uh, verse 8. So it says, With a slight wrath I have concealed my countenance from you for a moment, but with eternal kindness shall I show you mercy, said your Redeemer Hashem. So we see here that Hashem is not saying that he rejected us, that he actually loved us. He's saying that he's concealed his countenance from us. Right there he's saying it again and again throughout the prophets. He's saying he is concealed, meaning he's hiding from us. A countenance that no matter how far removed it may feel, he will once again reveal it to us in the most intimate way. But we need to remember that it is not always our sins that cause him to conceal himself from us. We can't judge ourselves that way. Sometimes it's just part of the journey we need to go through that this is a point of our lives where we're being tested, where he's seeing if we are going to stay loyal to him and true to him, even though we don't feel him there, right? So that seeing would be um, would be better or more accurately translated as awe, right? As reverence, because that is that is also a consequence of seeing Hashem in everything, and it's a better and a more evolved consequence. 
that that everything we see and everywhere we go, we see the handiwork of the master of the universe and we just feel and experience his love for it for us through all of it. And it just causes us to be in awe. I was just having a very fierce debate this morning after sunrise prayer uh, in, in Efrat with one of the rabbis about Uman and Reb Nachman and whether we should be going. I don't know if you're aware of this debate, but it uh, it causes me whatever. He was telling me a, a point that he mentioned. He said, why does Hashem create thunder? The whole idea of thunder Hashem created in order to inspire within our hearts awe for that one moment where we feel the thunder, the earth shaking, and we see that it's to, for Hashem wants to put awe within us because we're just so disconnected sometimes that it takes something like thunder right in front of us to shake the world for that awe to be inspired, where really awe should be just looking at a flower. That should inspire awe within us. Looking at our children alive before us, that should inspire awe within us. Because, you know, he is, he's within us, you know, every single moment. And, and he's within the moment, and he's beyond the moment at the same time. And he's just asking us to amplify the depth and the beauty of that moment of experiencing him within it. And hence the accuracy and the applicability of the conventional usage of the word fear, because that conventional fear, that is a piece of it too. That the, the fear that a betrayal of that relationship could tear us away from it. And that's why conventional fear is an important ingredient to have in true love. Because when you have a relationship of true love, you know that within that love, just beneath the surface, lies that possibility that it can be betrayed and violated, which would result in distance and alienation. You know, I was just reading an article about the exponential rise in infidelity in, uh, in, in marriages. I remember when I was a kid, if a politician had came down that he cheated against his wife, it was like a scandal. And now it's just like, yeah, that's just the thing. Yeah, of course he did that. That's just what, what they do. But obviously these, these marriages are falling apart to such an exponential level more than ever before because that fear is not an element of the love in those relationships. And clearly the moment of lust is strong enough to say, okay, well, it is what it is. Things, things happen and it's just, and there's not that fear of losing the, the, our beloved. And, and that's why love without fear is lacking. That's why love without fear is it's brittle. Because without having that fear of loss, without having respect for the distinct individuality of your beloved, uh, the love can just be easily violated and betrayed and broken. And, and at this moment, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't touch on the Torah portion as well and bring that in here. But it's going to come back to the whole fear idea that I really want to dive a little bit deeper into because, you know, I sat down, uh, Shana had an appointment in Efrat and I sat down in, in Efrat in the sort of, uh, in the settlement in this central place and and I was really digging into the Torah portion and it was challenging one to hold on to. I could not figure out for the life of me where to start, just trying to figure out where to take hold of it and in which direction to take it. It felt like a war in and of itself, right? And as the Torah portion begins with the words, when you go out to war. And I was just sitting outside this settlement of Efrat, and my friend Yossi came up to me, and he saw that I was in the Torah portion. And he didn't say hello. This is, he just came up, and this is what he said. This is what he came out with. It's not like, oh, and if you end up going out to war, here's what you should do. When you go out to war, you're going out to war. It's gonna happen. Everyone has to. You're going out. You better have a game plan because it's coming your way. I just, I just wanted to share that with you, just to share it with you, just to give you a little glimpse into what is really accurately, honestly, authentically, much of the chitter chatter between friends in Judea. We just see each other in the street and we share an idea from the Torah. We strengthen each other. We spiritually empower each other. And then we just go off on our way. It's not like empty, mindless, chitty chat. That's like, that happens all the time. And it spoke to me what he said. It spoke to me because here I was struggling in such a, a warlike, unusual way with the portion. And, uh, and here comes my friend Yossi, not knowing that and just reminding me that going out to war, that is the story of our lives in this world. We're in a constant war, a war of predominantly 
a war of perception. All of the other wars I really am coming to believe with their actual physical enemies and with the challenges of our lives and the challenges of our children, it is all consequences and outcroppings of the core war of perception, of consciousness, of awareness, of, an, uh, of, of understanding, of seeking to wrap our minds around what Hashem really wants from us in this world. That's what we're trying to figure. We want to have a relationship with Hashem. Well, that's what we have to, what does He want from us? And this portion is really a great example of that because this portion contains over 70 mitzvot, over 70 directives, over 70 commandments. I, I like using different words than commandments, even though mitzvot is the conventional um, definition of the word uh, commandment, mitzvah commandment, because mitzvah means essentially letzavot, to connect with. These are um, actions or thought. These are different things that we do that Hashem tells us, you want to connect with me? These are the things. So it's not like a commandment. It's an invitation for connection. Over and, and these these are these over 70 expressions of Hashem's, I want to say individuality, right? Over 70 ways Hashem tells us his love language through which we can express our love to him and the way that he wants to receive that love and that loyalty. And uh, and I was realizing and remembering that we can't always you know, connect the dots as we naturally wish we could. We want to feel like we get it all. We understand it all. I've spent so much of my life with different mantras and different things. And I'm like, okay, if I have this mantra, this mantra, this mantra, I'll be good. I'll understand it all. I'll understand it all. And then right then a new thing comes in and I don't understand anything anymore. And I'm confused and disoriented. Like, why is this happening? Is it a failure of me? No, it's not a failure. We're at war. That is part of the reality of this life. And many of you may have a voice in your head. Well, I don't want to be at war. This isn't a God of that. I want to be connected to a God of war, but I don't know. It's, it's a war of love. It's a war of connection. It's, it's a struggle. It's a battle. I don't know how to, how to, how to, how to, how to say it, but we can't always make sense of things and, and thereby own them, you know, own them in the way that we want to. We want to own things and we want to figure them out and understand. We can't ever fully understand the meaning of the depth of these mitzvot, of these commandments, of these invitations to connect. And that's part of a, a relationship of true love. Even with the spouse I was just thinking about. Even with the spouse, the moment we think that we really fully understand everything we know about them, we haven't figured out, this is who they are, and we sort of freeze frame, we figured it out. We, we know everything there is to know about them. That is often when the love dies, right? We aren't supposed to fully understand our spouse because there's never-ending depths. If they are created in the image of Hashem and they have a soul of the living God within them, then there's constant growth and outpouring of depth and meaning to them also that we're supposed to always seek to understand deeper and deeper. And it's the same thing with the Torah because thinking that we fully understand it, it, it detracts from the purity of the love that we have for Hashem. And I think more than any other Torah portion, our portion here, Ki Milchama, it displays that transcendence of Hashem's will over our intellect, possibly beyond any other Torah portion. Because in this portion, there are laws between man and Hashem, and there are laws between man and his fellow man, and there are also laws between man and animals, right? And from the from the bird sending the bird away to not muzzling the the other commandments between man and dirt and the land itself. We'll get into all of this. And, and I'll expound on this, but, you know, Rabbi Steinsalt, he explains that uh, the way the laws are expressed often seems, according to our finite understanding, it seems random and arbitrary. Seemingly major and seemingly minor laws right next to each other it sort of conveys that maybe what we think is major isn't major and minor isn't minor. We're not supposed to even categorize these things as major and minor, even though to us, thou shalt not murder is a lot more obvious than not muzzling your ox, right, when he's in the wheat field. But maybe we're not supposed to do that. It's, it's a big question, and it seems arbitrary and random the way the laws are, the commandments are often, you know, laid out in the Torah. And laws that, you know, we encounter every day, and then there's all of a sudden the law that we encounter once in a lifetime. You know, and all in verses that seem like 
side by side like non sequiturs, like they're just disconnected. And often they seem to contradict each other, at least at face value it does. You know, an example the Rav Steindolf gives would be the commandment of wiping out the entire Canaanites who occupy the land, immediately followed by the commandment not to cut down the fruit trees during that conflict. Okay, wipe out entire cities and all their inhabitants, yes. But the fruit trees, no, that's, that's crossing a line. Don't, don't cut down the fruit trees. It's confusing. You know, there, there are many other examples that he gives, and I don't have the time to go into all of them right now, of confusing commandments that appear as contradictions to each other. You know, on the one hand, it says, don't um, put to death the sons because of the sins of the fathers and the fathers because of the sins of the sons. And then boom, just a few verses later, the commandment to remember and not forget the evil of Amalek and we must wipe them out from the face of the earth because of what their ancestors did to us when we left Egypt. You know, it, it's, it's, it's confusing. It's actually, you know, the, the Kutzka Rebbe, he was asked how he can reconcile parts of the Torah, which are difficult for him to understand, parts that seem to, you know, express the, 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 the merciless. It seems like Hashem is merciless in certain parts of the Torah. How can he reconcile the seeming mercilessness of Hashem with the fact that we know Hashem is the definition of compassion and mercy? How can we even understand that? And he answered in one sentence. A God who can be understood by anyone is not worth serving. And that's worth really thinking about. A God who can be understood by anyone is not worth serving. Part of loving Hashem, part of loving God in a true way, is respecting the fact that ultimately we cannot ever fully understand Him. But we can respect Him. We can see Him in everything and in everyone. We can revere Him and we can be in awe of him, and we can love him with all of our hearts, and we can understand that the Torah he gave us is the, the ultimate gift, right? In that he is offering us a bridge, as Rabbi Steinzaltz explains, from this world to the next, from our limited intellect to his ultimate omniscience. The Torah he gave us is the greatest gift that anyone in a loving relationship can give to their beloved. The Torah is Hashem telling us that even though we can't understand him, we can love him. And this Torah, this is how. And I want to make clear here something that some of you, some of us, some of myself can sometimes find confusing. One could say, well, isn't this very fellowship is largely about immersing ourselves in the beauty and the meaning and the, the hidden truths of the Torah offer often seeking deep reasons behind the commandments that are so sometimes so self-testifyingly beautiful and true, that there's just no refuting them in my mind. And, and, and it's, we, we have entire sessions seeking to do exactly that, seeking to understand him. And now we're saying that we shouldn't seek to understand him, right? And so the renowned scholar, Samuel Heinemann, he expressed this tension between seeking understanding and at the same time recognizing the ultimate understanding is far beyond us. So he expressed it better than I could. And so I didn't have time to actually make a slide out of it, but this is what he said. He said, the thoughts of the creator, by the way, this is from a, a book, Studies in Dvarim by Nechama Leibowitz. And it's, I don't know if you can see it, but it's, it's an incredible book. And she is just such a scholar bringing together all of these disparate ideas. And so he's, this is what he said. The thoughts of the creator are higher than ours as the heavens are higher than the earth. It's not surprising then that there exists, exists precepts the reasons for which elude us. We cannot hope to probe the depths of the reasons underlying our Torah. On the other hand, the Torah's concept, concept of God is totally different from that of the ancient heathen cults. Right? They recognized no relationship between the will of the gods and the moral law. But we, we believe in an all-merciful and just God. Right? We slight the Almighty by regarding his precepts as the orders of a tyrant who imposes his will on his vassals. It's to be assumed that he desires the welfare, welfare of his creatures uh, to which he gave these commandments, these, these mitzvot. Just, and here's what it is, just as it's incumbent upon us to detect the finger of God in the wonders of nature and the events of our life, though they will still remain unsolved mysteries, we must endeavor as far as possible to appreciate the wisdom and the justice of his commands. 
right? So he's saying here that there is reason we can't understand it, but we need to try to figure it out, right? We need to try to understand it. I'm not willing to live a life where I don't. I'm always seeking to understand everything that happens to me in my life. You know, the famous thing I always say, like I get a, like a blister on my lip immediately. Who am I speaking to in a not respectful way? Am I get, gossiping? Am I slandering? Why did Hashem have this happen to me? Down to like every detail. Does that mean that I can ever really know? And No, but we're supposed to try to figure it out, right? And so uh, Nechama Libut, she brings right after this, right after we learn that we can't ever fully, truly understand these disconnected commandments in the portion, she presents this beautiful teaching by the great sage known as the Ibn Kasti in his book, Adnei Kesef. And it just touched me so deeply. Okay, and, and so I, I, I want to read it to you. It's a little bit long. Do I have your permission and your blessing? Yeah, so here's what, uh, here's what he said. He said, the, the Torah wished to make us conscious of our own status. He's talking about this week's Torah portion, all of these different commandments. Why all these commandments involving all of these things? It wants to make us conscious of our own status to remove pride and self-importance. We are as is known, composed of four substances, mineral, vegetable, animal, and human. These are the four categories of created things. And in our pride, we foolishly imagine that there's no kinship between us and the rest of the animal world, how much less with the plants and the vegetation. And to, to eradicate this foolish notion, God gave us certain precepts, some concerning mineral, others vegetables, others animals, and others human. Above all, we are bidden to be compassionate to all other human beings, right? Love thy neighbor as thyself, the Torah tells us. Next, in order come our relationship with the animal world, which we are only allowed to slaughter in an approved, painless manner when our soul desires flesh. Since we were originally designed to be vegetarian, as stated in Genesis, it was only after the flood that the consumption of meat became widespread, which is tantamount to eating our parents since it was nearest to our substance. Anyways, let me just move on. For this reason, the Torah commanded us to show pity to them, not to slaughter the mother and young on the same day, to send away the mother bird, not to see the kid in its mother's milk. The Torah did not issue more prohibitions since the animal world is not akin to us as other human beings are. In a descending scale, we come to precepts governing the plant world since they are further removed to us. They are not, not so stringent again as those affecting the animal world. We're forbidding to cut down fruit trees and the like. After this comes the soil and the inert matter, which is still further removed to us, but still akin to us. The land itself must, for example, the laws of sabbatical, the laws of Shemitah, we must give the land a year to rest. To conclude, he says, the Torah inculcates in us a sense of our modesty and lowliness, that we should be ever cognizant of the fact that we are of the same stuff as the ass and the mule, the cabbage and the pomegranate, and even the lifeless stone, right? It's it's uh, That spoke to me because sometimes I actually am able to comfort myself when I have these lusts, these desires, these, these physical things. I'm like, wait a second, wait a second. That's natural. I, I do have a physical body, which without my actual neshama, without my soul, it is quite identical in its impulses and desires and needs and instincts to that of an animal, okay? I'm not an animal. And making that sort of distinction in my head often, often helps me. But ultimately, I believe what, what he's saying is that humility is the goal here in this Torah portion. It's so crazy, and there's so many different uh, impossibility of understanding it, that it's trying to implant within us a sense of humility, not only in understanding it, but in the recognition that we are connected, even with the animal and the vegetable, all the way down, we're made of that very same earth and that very same matter. And, and, and that humility in understanding, right? That's what Isaiah says. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says Hashem. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We have that. That is a truth. But if we just left it at that, we wouldn't even try to understand anything in the world. We wouldn't be trying to understand any events in our lives, national, personal, is communication session, because we just say his ways are greater than ours. We can't possibly understand. But that isn't, I don't believe that that is Hashem's desire for us to throw up our hands and just say, sort of like uh, Professor Heinemann was saying, right? We're just, 
we're just vassals. We're little ants that can't understand this totalitarian dictator. That's not our relationship with Hashem. But humility is understanding that while we can never fully understand, so great is our love that we should never stop trying. Because when love is real, you want nothing more than to come close and to cleave to your beloved. And that's what the Torah is. It's our vehicle. It's our bridge to cleave to Hashem. And when we're cleaving to Hashem, I don't know about you guys, but in my experience, when I'm seeking understanding in my life, I think about this, maybe that, maybe this, maybe that. And then when I think of a certain thing and that's like, oh, oh, I just felt it. It's like, oh, in my gut. That's it. That's it. Is that it? I don't know. But I often think so because that truth that resonates within me, I believe that is a gift from God. And when we try to understand it, he, he helps us along the way. Okay, so we understand that love is built upon humility and respect. And so the Rebbe goes on to explain why the respect and the fear that we're talking about is so critical. Because when you just, when you just, just love someone, meaning the sort of Western conventional understanding of what love is, meaning only love them and there's no fear or respect involved, which isn't really love, okay, but let's say it feels like love to you, but there is no fear or respect. You're consumed, what, what's really happening there is that you're consumed with your feelings towards them as an object, right? As a, a projection in many ways of what you want them to be. And that love, that it doesn't last, right? Because their unique individuality manifests itself in a way that is different than yours. And very often that unique manifestation of a love that's different than, than that, that is the end of that love. I've seen that happen a lot of times really throughout Jewish history where there have been people that come and they love the Jews and love the Jews and love the Jews. And then when we don't fall into line like Luther, right? We don't accept Luther's Messiah and his understanding. Then that love turns into hate because it wasn't real love to begin with. It wasn't respect of our own unique individuality. And I see that even right now. You know, there's groups that I'm in, there's pastors I'm connected to, and I see it happening before my eyes, that this love they have for Israel is falling apart the more they get to know some Jews, because we could be a stiff-necked people. And uh, maybe their congregations around the world, mega pastors, love them and respect them and revere them, but Jews got chutzpah. We're like, no. And they're like, who? How? I just see it happening, right? And because... We understand that, that love, it's built upon humility and respect. And, and, and it's just, it's so critical because when you just love someone, right, what happens there? It's the end of that love. But when you respect them, you're focusing on their presence, on their desire, on their individuality, rather than your own, right? This is a, this is, I think it's a direct quote. If it's not, the, the fault lies within me. But here's the quote. Love is my desire to approach you. Respect is my deference, 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 sort of to your otherness. It's, it's my allowing you to, to be, the right to be who you are that is different than me. Respect doesn't come from love. Love comes upon, built upon respect. That's why we have all these different facets in our relationship with Hashem. Right? Hashem is our king that we must see and perceive and fear and obey. And that, by the way, is the work leading up to an on Rosh Hashanah. Fear. Accepting the yoke of the king upon us. And then we have 10 days of atonement where we focus on the evolution of that respect. Of, of reverence and fear and awe and whatever other words you want to use. But we start building upon that fear a healthy Love, the love that a child has for his or her father, right? That that judge that from Rosh Hashanah, you know, that judge that we were shivering before, it turns out that that judge is our father who loves us and that we love and we trust he'll have compassion upon us. But if we don't first go through that Rosh Hashanah experience and fear that king as if he wasn't our father, then I don't know if we're able to really build up that, that deeper love of a child to a father. And then comes the holiday of Sukkot, which we'll talk about soon, but where we go into this all full embrace of the sukkah. The final, deepest facet of that relationship is Sukkot. That's why it's called the, the holiday of happiness. 
That is the love of a wife to a husband. Because the prophets teach us that that love, the wife-husband bond, that is the deepest manifestation of our, our relationship with Hashem. And we see that actually again in this week's Haftorah portion, the portion of the prophets, when Isaiah tells the nation as a message from Hashem to them, the same message that I believe we're being told right now, which is that our period of widowhood is coming to an end. Here's the verse. For like a wife, uh, verse 6, chapter 54, verse 6, for like a wife who is forsaken and grieved, Hashem has called you. And like a wife of one's youth, who had become despised, said your God. Right? There's two sort of analogies there. Like a widow, like a divorcee, or not maybe not a divorcee, but someone whose husband left her, they're separated. These are the portions of, of consolation that we're in right now. These are the portions that we're supposed to be reading right now. Not only at this point of the year, but I also believe at this point in history. Because after the long, arduous two millennium of, of concealment and alienation, Hashem is slowly but surely returning to us. And we're returning to Him. And that's what we're doing here together in this fellowship. Which brings us to the final verse. right? The climax of hope and promise. A verse that is sung every week here in the hills of Judea. Not for thousands of years. I don't even think for years, maybe months, maybe a couple of years, but it's just had a revival, this verse. And it's the last verse in the Haftorah portion. This is the verse where Hashem promises us that no matter how scary and unstable things may get, no matter how destabilizing the, the literal earthquakes may become, we need to trust that His love for us is eternal. Here's the verse. For the mountains may crumble and the hills may fade away, but my kindness shall not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace shall not falter, said the one who shows you mercy, Hashem. I actually spent Shabbat in Ephrat for that reason that I told you before, but as I was there, I'm like, should I be here or should I not? Obviously, I'm here because Hashem wants me here. He's the king. He made it happen. And I was able just to resign myself to being there, and it was a beautiful, beautiful Shabbat that I clearly needed. But anyways, Rav Shlomo Katz, he's one of my most beloved friends and Rebbe's. I don't know how many, I'm sure many of you know him. But this song that was actually composed by the famous and quite mysterious Michael Shapiro, I think he lives like sort of in isolation in Arizona. I don't even know the story about him. But he clearly has his soul lit up in quite a special way, and he brings down very beautiful, beautiful teachings and beautiful melodies and so he brought this melody down, and it is one of the dearest songs to Rav Shlomo Katz and now to his community because he's a true leader. And it gives us hope in a very real way. And I wanted to share it with you. And I've chosen this version of it um, because it has English as well so we can understand it.
for this I have drawn you with my love, an everlasting love. I have loved you for this I have drawn you with my love. The mountains will crumble and the hillsides will fade away but my love for you will not end the mountains will crumble and the hillsides will fade away but my love for you will not end The mountains will crumble and the hillsides will fade away but my love for you will not end, will not end. I just had to share that with you, you know, you know, it's just, um, I wanted to share the entire, I know it was long and I know we're over time already, but, um, that's God speaking to us right now in these times through the prophet Isaiah throughout history. But I believe even more to us right now at a time where it's so difficult and so confusing just to breathe and just to live. And we feel unworthy and know Hashem, Hashem loves us. And I think that the love that we have for each other, sometimes in our hearts, is a testimony that builds that up. And uh, and I think it was that love that I feel from you uh, that gave me the confidence to dive into this fellowship that I think ended up making more sense than I thought that it would in this sort of uh, weakened and relatively confused state. Even though I didn't feel like that during the fellowship, I felt very animated and alive. It just shows I got to just remember that you guys give me a life force that is just an extra thing. But uh, but I'm glad I did. I'm glad I, I did this because here we are together and then we're much better together than we are apart. And as I always say to Dvash, and it doesn't, I don't even care what we're doing as long as we're, she says, together, just as my father said to me. And so with that, I want to I wanna bless us that Hashem fills our hearts with fear and awe and reverence and respect that he fear that he fills our hearts with true year up, you know, true seeing and experiencing Hashem. And built upon that year, may he plant within us the deepest yearning for him, the deepest love for him, the deepest desire to cleave to him with all of our hearts and all of our souls with everything that we have. Amen. And now before I bless you, I want to invite you. I know, Tabitha, you thought we were going to have it because I was going to go short and it ended up being longer, but maybe nobody has anything to share. Maybe they don't, but if, if they do, I really want to at least open up zero, maximum invitation, minimum pressure, but just to open up to hear your thoughts or your questions, your thoughts about fear of God, anything you want to share, if it's okay with you, Tabitha. And uh, so I, I want to invite you to do that and share all of that with us during the Fellowship Connection. But just before we do that, it's time for a different sort of connection, different sort of Fellowship Connection. And that is my great joy to bless you with a prayer, with a blessing that Aaron the High Priest would give to the nation of Israel. And although, as you know, I am not a descendant of Aaron, I'm not a priest, I am part of the Am Kohanim, a nation of priests. 
And for that, it is my greatest joy to bless all of you. Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmarecha Ya'er Adonai panavelecha v'yichunecha Yisa Adonai panavelecha v'yishmarecha shalom May Hashem bless and protect you. May He shine His light and His countenance upon you. May He give you peace. Amen. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.